So you know a court case is going to be interesting when the judge asks the jurors questions like these. Anyone ever been to a rally for Mr. Trump? Anyone believe that the last presidential election was stolen? What about the three percenters? Communists? Proud Boys? KKK? Thin Blue Line? Anyone been a member? Those were the questions that the judge had to ask potential jurors in the civil case brought against President Trump by E. Jean Carroll. That case centers on allegations that Trump raped E. Jean Carroll in a New York City department store in the 1990s. And those are allegations that Trump denies. And the questions that the judge asked the jury in that case, they basically tell you everything you need to know about Trump's base of support right now. Are you a member of a radical militia group? How about the KKK? Are you a believer in the big lie that the election was stolen? Because if so, you may be part of Donald Trump's base, and that could amount to bias in this trial. That highly revealing detail out of court today, that happened on the very same day that President Biden officially announced that he is running for a second term as president. If you look at his announcement video today, it's pretty clear that Biden is courting a different kind of supporter. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead, we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. Because I know America. I know we're good and decent people. I know we're still a country that believes in honesty and respect and treating each other with dignity. That we're a nation where we give hate no safe harbor. We believe that everyone is equal, that everyone should be given a fair shot to succeed in this country. No mention of the KKK or fringe militia groups. After that video was released, President Biden was off on the campaign trail where he spoke to union workers in Washington, D.C. Biden's argument for his reelection while at that meeting focused on his accomplishments over the past two and a half years. Things like passing a major infrastructure bill, passing the biggest climate investment in American history and lowering prescription drug costs. And the president vowed that if reelected, he would finish the job. And that is a 2024 Biden sales pitch. Finish the job. In response to the president's announcement today, the Republican Party gave everyone a sneak peek of its strategy against Joe Biden in 2024. I want to show you a little of what they put out today. But before I do, I need to give you sort of a weird disclosure. For their first ad since the official Biden announcement, the Republican Party chose to just make something up. Or rather, they asked a computer to just make something up. The RNC's first big ad against Biden was entirely generated by artificial intelligence. AI. And it takes place in a completely fictional dystopia, a kind of robot manufactured hellscape where Joe Biden is reelected. Take a look. This just in, we can now call the 2024 presidential race for Joe Biden. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. Who's in charge here? It feels like the train is coming off the tracks. China invaded Taiwan. The financial markets are in free fall. They closed San Francisco? How do you close a city? Do they just 
strip it down like an old Toys R Us and turn the whole Bay Area into one big Halloween superstore? I mean, who can know? Despite what those robot news anchors have to say, none of this is real. And it says a lot that the Republican National Committee had to create an entirely fictional Biden apocalypse to run against. It is also shocking, by the way, to see Republicans double down on misleading campaign shenanigans just one week after the media arm of the Republican Party, which would be Fox News, paid out a historic $700 million settlement for perpetuating lies about a presidential election. But yeah, that really is the Republican strategy right now to beat Joe Biden. Joining us now are Dan Pfeiffer, former senior White House advisor to President Obama, and Kevin Madden, a former senior advisor to Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Thank you, gentlemen, both for being here. Kevin, the robot hellscape seems <laughs> to be the best that the, the RNC has to offer. And I wonder, well, first of all, I mean, what you make of it as a as a piece of campaign strategy? Well, look, I mean, first of all, I don't think they're giving Madison Avenue any um, anything to run for on this. Um, as you far don't as think the, the AI, is, the AI is, is on the yeah. level? Um, but I think, look, this is the message that they're most comfortable with, particularly right now that they don't really have a candidate. I mean, I think Trump is the titular leader of the party, yeah. but without a, without a candidate right now, the number one goal of anybody working at the RNC and as part of their message machine is to draw as tough a message against Joe Biden as possible. And so when you look at the, that type of messaging, that's all you're really going to get from the RNC up until you have another uh, Republican nominee. Or maybe forever, though. I mean, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't it, they delight in just being able to focus on Biden, not actually have to talk about Trump or or yeah. whoever the candidate is and the vision for the Republican but Party? It, but it also goes to what you were mentioning earlier, which is that so many of the most ardent-based voters right now, what motivates them more than anything is this idea that they are part of an effort to stop Joe Biden mm -hmm. from destroying the country. And that is really what's animating base politics right now. So you're going to hear a message after message after message that not only does it raise money, but it sort of, you know, sort of calcifies the, the most ardent, active Republican-based voter um, to, to, uh, to sort of support the RNC and be active. Um, Dan, I wonder what you think of President Biden's rollout video, uh, which was, I will just say, better produced than the robot hellscape from the RNC. It has a vision, right? The finish the job mantra, which I guarantee we'll be hearing a lot about. But it also does propose, you know, Biden as better than the alternative, right? You see these foreboding signs that are sprinkled in throughout that ad. It's equal parts optimism and to some degree pessimism. Yeah, I mean, looking at both these ads, Strike one for humans in the coming battle against robots for our job. So great. There'll be a lot of political consultants who sleep well tonight knowing they sold the job for the rest of this campaign. I thought his ad was very good. I was struck by, it felt a little bit different than your typical ad. It. I was really struck by how much time and energy they spent in the ad talking about fighting for democracy, fighting for freedom. The Biden campaign is clearly trying to recapture that value, centering it on abortion rights, protecting the rights of marriage equality and the rights of LGBTQ plus people in this country against Republican assault. And you see a little bit of a repeat of what worked so well in 2022, which is to brand the Republicans as MAGA extremists. This is just the beginning. The president has a lot of work to do. He knows that. But I think you this is a, a strong foundation for what the first phase of this campaign will be. Can I also just say, Dan, um, Republicans love to make hay about Kamala Harris, and she figures prominently in this ad. She's very much a part of this ticket from Jump Street. Absolutely. And I think that she's going to be a part of this campaign in a way in which I think no vice president has been 
certainly in recent memory, because of the president's age, because of the historic groundbreaking nature of her vice presidency, the fact that you that she is a future leader of this party. Republicans like to go after women. They like to go after people of color. The vice president is both. So she will be a big target of the right wing media. And so it's smart of the Biden campaign to put her best foot forward, to focus on her, to insulate against those attacks they know are coming. You know, Kevin, I think a lot of people want to believe because we are such a highly polarized country and the stakes seem so incredibly high, I think, for both parties. Um, (laughs) That this is not going to be a close election, but every indicator would seem to suggest that no matter who the nominees are, I mean, presumably on the Democratic side, it'll be Joe Biden. And as of right now, on the Republican side, if it's Donald Trump, I mean, the the fact of the matter is approval approval ratings, which are a good indicator of how you ultimately do in in the final election, they don't move around like they used to. Right. And, you know, if you if you look at Biden's approval rating, it's at 42.5, which was what Trump's approval rating was, I believe, when he announced uh, that he was running again. The the fact of the matter is this is going to be played out in the margins. Yeah, I mean, the American electorate right now, and I bet you Dan would agree with me here, is stuck between the 45-yard lines of American politics. And um, what is it now that actually moves things over that 50-yard line so that you have a winning majority? And I think this ad that or the, the announcement that the president put out today sort of speaks to what makes the big difference. The big difference here is that ultimately the people who, who, who make or make or break these elections Ultimately, they go with the more optimistic candidate. They go with the candidate who has more of a vision for what the future is, someone who can speak to their hopes, to their dreams, to their aspirations. So as much as we see people activating their base politics right now, Mm -hmm. this is ultimately going to come down to those swingiest to swing voters in like nine suburb areas around the country. And whether or not the candidate who can win can answer the question affirmatively, does this person understand the problems of people like me and have a plan for the future? And so... As much as the base activation goes on, when we get down to the last two weeks of this campaign, that's the message that's going to win. That's that's such an interesting point, Kevin. And Dan, I would love to get your thoughts on that, because so much so so much of what seems to animate American politics right now is pessimism and who can scare the crap out of you know the voters more effectively. And, and certainly, you know, Biden has done his fair share of saying, look, it's it's me or the apocalypse. Do you think it is the optimism message that actually is the closing deciding factor? Well, Kevin is correct that the more optimistic candidate has essentially won almost every election with the very notable exception of 2016. Um, and But I think that is a, having a vision for the future is going to be most impactful with the voters who are likely to set the election. And to the question about whether this is going to be close, it is going to be close. It just is. The last two presidential elections combined were decided by a number of voters not much larger than the number of people who attend one Big Ten college football game on a Saturday. That's how that is where we are in American politics, not nationally, but within the context of the Electoral College. And so it is absolutely going to be very close. And when it comes to Joe Biden's approval ratings, I think the there's you can't analyze those in a vacuum. I think winning presidential elections is a little bit like avoiding getting eaten by a bear. You don't have to be more popular. You don't have to be popular. You just have to be more popular than the other guy. Yes. So with either one of these Republicans or that we are likely to see Biden, he's got work to do, but he starts off in a very strong position. Um, I, I got to ask, we, we're talking about age and I want to direct this to you, Dan, because, 
You know the youngs. You're is he old? Is he oldest? Yeah, is he yeah. The oldest? He, you're the oldest, <laughs> and that's as a, as the youngest. All the oldest. I, I think you know. There's there's I, the Biden team seems to be doing something in this initial campaign rollout that I think is kind of genius as it concerns Biden Biden's age, which we are told all the time is a factor and something everybody needs to be concerned about, given you know his historical age in terms of running for re-election. Um, they, it seems like they're taking almost a page from the Bernie Sanders playbook, which is don't try and pretend this guy is young. Use use the the kind of aged maverick thing to his advantage. They are they are literally taking the dark Brandon meme and they're putting it on sweatshirts. And, there it is on mugs. You know, like it, the whole point is this. He's this. You know, they're taking effective weaknesses and trying to draw strength from them. So, like, don't pretend that Joe Biden is, you know, a, a middle-aged guy that can relate using, like, cool language that they, the youngs use. Own the fact that he's older, that he's, like, prone to gaffes. Will they do that in, in you know, wholeheartedly in the campaign? I don't know. But at, at this initial stage, it seems like they're embracing it more than they're trying to run away from it. That you can't avoid it. it. Joe Biden's age is an absolutely legitimate question that has to be answered in this election. It should be. The salience of that question is going to depend on two things. One, how old the Republican nominee is. If it is Donald Trump, who is, I think, a relatively aged 76-year-old, I think the, the question of Biden's age goes down. And it's how he handles himself on the campaign trail. And if he handles himself on the campaign trail over the next two years, like he has in the White House over the next four years, he will easily meet the threshold the American people want. And so you can't run away from it. The only way to get there is not around, it's through. And by engaging with people, taking it on, being honest about it, not hiding from the press or the public, it's this video indicates that they're going to take it head on. I think it's the right choice. Kevin, how do you see them? Play? What like what do they need to from a strategic perspective? What do they need to avoid in terms of the age question? Well, Dan's right. It's the one thing that you can't avoid. You can't change it, right? So the one thing they have to do is um, is the supporting cast. I think the more that they surround him with young leaders who are leaders in the Democratic coalition, um, Kamala Harris, I think that's why she was featured so prominently mm-hmm. inside the video. Um, and then, um, you know, just position him in areas where he can flourish on um, the experience question versus having it always be a question about his age. That's really the best option that they have. I mean, I would also say, don't put him on teleprompter. Let him, let Joe be Joe. Take take the loss, which will inevitably be a Joe Biden gaffe, for the win that is Joe Biden in his natural state. Yeah, and I also think uh, the more that they put him, um, they, 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 they don't leave him exposed to the elements, but they use th- more things like this, like videos and short interactions with crowds. That's probably where he does the best. Like, I would have Joe Biden, if I were in the Democratic Party advising them, I'd have him working the rope lines all the time. Yeah. The rope lines is where he probably does the best work. Yes, as someone who's yeah. seen him in the rope lines, right. you could skip the speech entirely. And you know what? The other thing is he loves it. He loves the interaction with, um, with the crowds. Yes. Keep him safe. But keep them in the rope line. Dan Pfeiffer, Kevin Madden, great to talk with you both. Um, you, I was going to say, you silver fox, Dan, but really, that's, <laughs> that's Kevin. You're both older than me, so much older. Uh, I'll take the yellow. Yeah, okay. One. We have a lot more to get to. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. New reporting about another Supreme Court justice's final dealings is raising new questions about ethics and the Supreme Court and whether those two things actually go together. Plus, Senator Elizabeth Warren engaged in a fiery debate today with a Republican colleague who is engaging in what might be best termed abortion extortion. Senator Warren will be here live with me coming up next.
everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. If you were president, would you advocate for federal limits. Yeah. So once again, I, I once again, I'm 100 percent pro-life. And I, I do believe so, yes. that. No, that's not what I said. I, I do believe that we should have a robust conversation about what's happening in the on a very important topic. Republicans have been having a tough time figuring out how to talk about abortion ever since the Supreme Court struck down Roe last year. And it has been particularly awkward for Republican presidential candidates. But today, Nikki Haley, the lone woman among the declared Republican candidates, she chose to confront abortion head on in a speech in Arlington, Virginia. Haley was speaking at the headquarters of the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America offices, which recently criticized Trump for his campaign position that abortion policy should be decided at the state level and not by the federal government. Now, Haley's speech had all the trappings of a big campaign-defining policy speech, except that once she actually delivered it, there were no specifics, no policy, no endorsement of a national ban after a specific number of weeks of pregnancy, nothing, no details, just vibes about forging national consensus on abortion. But the problem with that, for a Republican at least, is that the national consensus on abortion, held by more than 60 percent of this country, is that abortion should be legal which is not where Republican candidates or lawmakers happen to be. And Republican lawmakers in Congress today have now manufactured a stalemate over abortion, one that could imperil our country's military readiness, at least according to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. In February, the Defense Department announced new policies that would give troops and their family members paid leave and stipends to travel for abortions or for fertility treatments. Ever since, Senator Tommy Tuberville from Atlanta, who sits on the Armed Services Committee, he has been up in arms about that policy change. And as sort of a comeuppance to the Defense Department, Tuberville has intentionally stalled nearly 200 military promotions and nominations for the past two months. Defense Secretary Austin and others have been very clear here. Throwing sand in the gears of the military could cripple America's national security, but Senator Tuberville has promised to continue this protest until the DOD changes its abortion policy. Today, after a back and forth on the Senate floor, Tuberville blocked a request by Senator Elizabeth Warren to allow those military promotions to move forward. Tuberville is holding up basic military staffing, including nominations for our next military representative to NATO, 
and for the director of intelligence for U.S. Cyber Command, both of which seem, I don't know, fairly important. Here's what Senator Warren had to say. Holding up the promotion of every single military nominee isn't democracy, it's extortion. Joining us now is Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat from Massachusetts and member of the Armed Services Committee. Senator Warren, thank you so much for being here. I, I, I would love to get your reaction to Tommy Tuberville's latest defense of his actions, saying the military has too many generals and admirals. What do you so, make of that? So let me just remind everybody how this starts. You know, everyone's familiar with the fact that the Senate has to approve Supreme uh, uh, judges, has to approve cabinet officials, has to approve ambassadors. Turns out that for all of our top-ranking military, they also have to be approved by the Senate. So when someone is promoted from uh, colonel to brigadier general, they have to be approved by the Senate. This is always done routinely. They're done in a big package, and it just goes through. In fact, there's usually not even a recorded vote on this. And what's happened is because of the Department of Defense's policy on permitting people who are in a state, in a, at a, a military installation in a state that prohibits certain um, uh, 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 reproductive right, to, uh, uh, access to reproductive health care, they can leave the state. The military says you can go away for a few days, get the care that you need. That's the policy. Senator Tuberville is now holding 184 of our military people, everybody who has come up since he's put a hold in place. And this means the people don't get their promotions. They don't get their pay bumps, and they don't get to go to the postings where the military wants to send them, like the head of the 7th Fleet or the head of the 5th Fleet or the head of the Cyber Command. And it's true for military up and down the line in this whole area where I just want you to think about what that means. Senator Tuberville actually stood there and said, in effect, we don't need these people. They're already— too many generals, too many admirals, too many officers. And his solution to that is just to try to drop the hammer on all of them as a way to try to lever the Department of Defense to crack down on people who are at military installations in states that ban access to abortion or IVF or other reproductive health services. It's truly stunning and terrible for our military readiness and overall for our national defense. I mean, I just got to say the politics of this for a Republican are so patently insane. The fact that we have Elizabeth Warren criticizing Tommy Tuberville on the mil on military readiness is like bizarre. I mean, honestly, seems like bizarre world. Do you think his newfound line of defense that we just have too many admirals is indicative of someone who is feeling the heat and eventually is going to cave on this issue? You know, I genuinely don't know what it's going to take ultimately to move Senator Tuberville. But it is the reminder about what the underlying strategy of the Republicans is. They keep looking for places to extend, to expand, to create a situation where abortion is front and center and where there are extremely 
extremist views that are completely out of touch with the majority of Americans are going to be hammered down and forced on everybody in this country. And that's what makes this so important to fight back. It is insulting to our military. It is threatening to our national defense. And it is ultimately one more statement that if the Republicans have the power, they are going to cram their extremist abortion views down on all of the rest of America. They they will cram their abortion views down the throat of the rest of America when when they themselves can actually figure out what they want to some degree as well, right? I mean, you're seeing national Republican figures like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott absolutely falling all over themselves to try and stake out a position that appears to be that appears to appease the anti-choice caucus within their Mm -hmm. party, but that does not doom their chances at a national election. I mean, how do you think how do you think the Republican Party resolves this? Does this inevitably head towards something like Lindsey Graham's proposed national ban uh, after 15 weeks? I mean, how do you see Republicans eventually ultimately circling the wagons on this one? You know, I, I actually see this as this is what extremism is all about. They just get themselves tied into a tighter and tighter and tighter knot. And they should continue to get pressure from everyone else to state their positions clearly and out in public because they understand that they are out of touch. They understand that they are going where the majority of Americans very much do not want them to go. They understand that they are the ones who are provoking Americans across this country to stand up and say, wait, I've had enough of this. We are not going to put up with this. We are going to fight back. Let's face it. In the 2024 election, abortion will be on the ballot. Do you think on that note, President Biden announced he's running uh, for re-election today. Do you think mm-hmm. the administration has staked out uh, enough of an offensive posture on the subject of abortion? Because the state level regulations, the the lawsuits that we're seeing across the country at the state level and to some degree the federal level have created mass confusion. Women's lives hang in the balance. Um, there's a real question about what, quote unquote, freedom means in America these days. Do you think the administration is doing enough? Is President Biden doing enough to articulate a vision for reproductive freedom should he be reelected in 2024? You know, I have to say, I watched that video this morning and I love the fact that one of the very first words in it is freedom and that he really is taking this word back for Democrats. And to me, it was just the loud and clear signal We stand on one side and extremist Republicans are on the other. And the side we stand on truly is about freedom. It's about women making their own decisions, their own decisions about abortion, their own decisions about IVF, their own decisions about birth control. It's about people being treated with respect and having that kind of ability to be able to determine their own futures and for the president to just come straight out of the box with that's where he wants to lead. I like that kind of leadership. And then the fact that he can bring in Vice President Harris to just punch it home. I like the position that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are in on abortion. I think it's the fight that the American people want to see. We need to expose what the Republicans are up to and make it clear that we are the party 
that stand for access to abortion, stand for access to birth control. We will be there on the side of American women all across this country. She likes President Biden's odds. You heard it here first. Senator Elizabeth Warren, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We have still more to come this evening, including reports of a new grand jury investigation into Trump supporting election deniers in Michigan, while the prosecutor in Georgia warns police to get ready for her, quote, charging decisions, which are coming this summer. Plus, after revelations about Justice Clarence Thomas's financial entanglements with a billionaire, new reporting today reveals another Supreme Court justice who left out some interesting information from his public disclosures. That is next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. For two years, Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch used incredibly blurry photos to unsuccessfully try to sell this three-bedroom, three-and-a-half-bath cabin on a 40-acre property in Colorado, purposefully built right along the Colorado River to be an ideal fishing getaway. Politico reports today that just nine days after Gorsuch was confirmed by the Senate to our nation's highest court, nine days later, Neil Gorsuch got an offer. The chief executive of one of the nation's biggest law firms, Greenberg Traurig, bought this ideal fishing getaway. Gorsuch reported making somewhere between $250,000 and $500,000 from that sale, but federal disclosure records show Gorsuch never disclosed the identity of the purchaser. Despite the fact that Gorsuch in the past has disclosed who bought him a fishing rod, he did not disclose who bought his literal fishing cabin. Since then, that chief executive law firm, has been involved in 22 cases before the court. In 12 of those cases, Gorsuch himself has a recorded opinion. He sided with greenberg Traurig eight times and against them four times. But he has never recused himself. Now, the chief executive of this law firm, the guy who bought the property, he told Politico he did not know Neil Gorsuch was one of the owners when he made his first offer, and that the fact that Gorsuch was going to be a Supreme Court justice was absolutely irrelevant to the purchase of the property. Gorsuch himself did not respond to Politico's questions about this sale. NBC News has reached out as well, and we have not yet heard back, which is okay then. This kind of sale and this lack of disclosure and lack of recusal would be a massive ethics problem for basically any other official in our government. But the Supreme Court plays by its own rules, and that is becoming more and more untenable. For example, if you look again 
at Justice Gorsuch's sale of this ideal fishing getaway in Colorado, not only is the sale pretty questionable, so are the sellers themselves, the folks Justice Gorsuch sold this house with. Gorsuch owned and sold that property with two other people, a man named Kevin Conwick and a man named Cannon Harvey, men the New York Times describes as two of the top lieutenants of a very particular billionaire. This man, Philip Anschutz. Anschutz inherited an oil and gas fortune and used that money to build an empire that stretches from oil and gas to sports leagues to real estate. The New York Times reports that Gorsuch represented Anschutz himself as outside counsel for several years in the early 2000s. Anschutz is also notably the owner of the very right-wing news outlet, the Washington Examiner, as well as a major Republican donor. The Times reports that in 2006, Anschutz successfully lobbied Colorado's lone Republican senator and the Bush administration to nominate Gorsuch to the federal appeals court, after which Justice Gorsuch became a semi-regular speaker at Anschutz's annual hunting retreats. Now, if all of this talk about hunting retreats and so forth is giving you deja vu, if you feel like you just heard a story about a Supreme Court justice being uncomfortably close with an incredibly conservative billionaire, that is because you did. Earlier this month, ProPublica published a series of exposés about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his conservative billionaire buddy, a man named Harlan Crow. ProPublica reported that for more than two decades, Clarence Thomas accepted luxury trips virtually every year without disclosing them, and that Harlan Crow bought a house from Thomas while Thomas was on the court, and Justice Thomas did not disclose it. Up until yesterday, Thomas's excuse here had been that he was advised he didn't have to disclose any of this because Harlan Crow, quote, did not have business before the court. Turns out that's also not the case. Crow's office confirmed to Bloomberg that a company Crow had an interest in, the Trammell Crow Residential Company, that it tried to get the court to accept a case in 2005. Now, the court declined that case, but at least publicly, Justice Thomas did not recuse himself from that decision. And Thomas also did not respond to any of Bloomberg's questions about any of this. And tonight, we got the news from the Senate Judiciary Chair, Dick Durbin, that Chief Justice Roberts has declined the committee's request that the chief justice testify about the court's ethics issues because the justices are all supposedly policing themselves. And we see how well that is going. Coming up later this hour, an update on the battle between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the company that's designing a new AP course in African-American studies for high school students. But first, why Donald Trump may need to change his summer plans. That's next. We have some news today related to former President Trump's effort to steal the election in 2020. In Michigan, a special prosecutor has reportedly convened a grand jury to weigh criminal charges against a group of Trump supporters for tampering with voting equipment in the aftermath of the 2020 election. If this sounds familiar, that is because it is. A similar investigation is underway in Georgia, where Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis is looking into Trump's efforts to overturn the election results in that state, including according to CNN and others, including efforts to get access to voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. Now, we don't know how this part of the investigation will play out in the broader scheme of things Willis is investigating, but we do know that decisions are coming. 
Yesterday, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported that D.A. Willis is getting ready to potentially announce charges against Trump and others this summer. We know that because in a letter Willis sent to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office, warning them of the need for extra security as she moves ahead with her investigation, quote, I will be announcing charging decisions resulting from this investigation during Fulton County Superior Court's fourth term of the court, which will begin on July 11th and conclude on September 1st, 2023. To discuss all this, I am joined now by Mary McCord, Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University Law Center and former Acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the Department of Justice. Mary, it is great to see you. I wonder if you are reading this letter from the DA in Fulton County the same way I'm reading it. She's asking for extra security, providing this letter to bring your attention to the need for heightened security and preparedness in the coming months due to this pending announcement. And I, it sounds pretty plainly obvious there that it, a criminal indictment of Donald Trump may be coming between July 11th and September 1st. Do you read it that way? Well, she certainly doesn't mention Trump by name in that way, and she doesn't promise indictments. But uh, one wonders whether you would need a request for such a level of security if she wasn't expecting to, there to be indictments returned, and in particular, indictments against the former president. I will note that, you know, uh, there were lots of calls for protests in New York by former President Trump himself, as well as others like Marjorie Taylor Greene, that largely ended up being a dud after Alvin Bragg announced his indictments. But Georgia is not New York, and I think uh, Fonnie Willis has some reason to be concerned. Now, she could have reached out to the sheriff quietly and not publicly, but she chose to do it in a letter that, of course, is now quite public. And I have to think that that was a signaling function on her part and a, and a way for her to also say, you know, when I said imminent a month or so ago, I didn't really mean imminent. I meant July. Yeah, right. Because there are a lot of people that are eager to find out what the DA is going to do down in Fulton County. If we're talking July, August and maybe the first day of September, that's quite different than May, which was, I think, widely seen as the expectation for when those charging decisions might come down. When we talk about the delay here, um, The New York Times is reporting, as have some others, that there is potential cooperation coming from some of the fake electors who were involved in the plot in Georgia, that they may now be cooperating with the DA's office. If that is, like, I mean, I guess I wonder from a, a you know, a legal perspective, what what sort of meaningful information could be added to the pot, if you will, with new voices coming forward and what questions you would have for fake electors were they to cooperate with your office? Sure. Uh, my office, when I was in the government, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, uh, yes. I, I certainly would have wanted to talk to them, uh, find out who was uh, working with them, who was orchestrating, you know, their scheme to to meet uh, on the day that the Electoral College meets and to cast their ballots, even though they were casting ballots for the loser of their state in a state that gives all of the electoral ballots to the winner, and figure out how high up that goes. Now, we know from other places and from other— uh, investigations, including that of the House Select Committee, that James Troupas uh, was involved in Wisconsin, for example, with the fraudulent electors there, and that Kenneth Chesbrough was very involved with the scheme in multiple states. And so, uh, you know, trying to find out if these uh, electors have more information about who their contacts were, who, you know, any um, other emails or communications they might be able to share. But I would also note the other things that you were reporting about Michigan. There's 
also evidence that in Georgia as well, there were efforts to tamper with and, and actually access, unauth- get unauthorized access to voting machines in Coffee County and to upload that, um, the, the software for voting machines. And so some of that, I think, is probably also within the scope of Fannie Willis's investigation. And it could be that they're working on, you know, cooperators related to that as well. New revelations suggest that um, this kind of access in Georgia was actually discussed at the December 18th meeting that Trump had with uh, Sidney Powell and others. And so that would really be pretty um, substantial new evidence if that's, in fact, uh, true. We know that uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith is also investigating efforts to subvert the election. And we are told repeatedly that the special counsel's office is not coordinating with DAs in in the timing of potential charging decisions. But because Jack Smith and Fonnie Willis have a lot of overlap, do you think there is a possibility that the DOJ is talking to the DA's office and they're coordinating the potential rollout of any indictments because the time frame looks to be similar this summer? Yeah. And, you know, we don't have a time frame from Jack Smith. What we know about Jack Smith is that as a federal prosecutor, he's going to be very conscious of not taking any action too close to an election that could be perceived as trying to influence that election. So whether that's this summer or this fall or even in the spring, you know, really kind of depends on uh, that proximity to the election, which, of course, we know will be November of 2024. But I don't think it has to be this summer. In terms of coordination, I do think that they're probably going to be trying to be careful to not, you know, have an appearance of coordinating in a way that the, that could be criticized as being done for political purposes. But you're right. There's overlap here. In many uh, respects, Fannie Willis's investigation is a subset of Jack Smith's investigation, his being nationwide and hers being, of course, for, focused on Georgia and in particular Fulton County. But um, so there's got to be at least some level of, you know, sharing of evidence, potentially d- discussing witnesses. So so that one case investigation doesn't harm the other investigation and, and perhaps doing that type of working together. And there may be some discussion of timing, but I do think they'd want to be careful to not, you know, like you use the term rollout, to not subject themselves to criticism that they planned a rollout for political purposes. So be conscious, but don't make it look coordinated because it's <laughs> not coordinated, even though there's a lot of overlap. Okay, it's complicated. Mary McCord, thank you so much for your time tonight. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We have one more story for you this evening about how one educational institution may be learning that it does not pay to cater to Governor Ron DeSantis. That's next. It was just a few months ago when Florida Governor Ron DeSantis turned the tractor beam of his war on woke towards a brand new high school AP course in African-American studies. As far as Governor DeSantis was concerned, learning about things like intersectionality or black queer theory, that was all against the law. So when the College Board, the organization that provides AP courses, when they publicly released the course framework and all of the topics that the governor had taken issue with had suddenly vanished, people put two and two together. And so did the governor. His office tweeted, excellent news. Thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis' principled stand for education over identity politics, the College Board will be revising the course for the entire nation. The entire nation. 
The College Board denied that they were caving to DeSantis, saying Florida is attempting to claim a political victory by taking credit retroactively for changes we ourselves made, but that they never suggested to us. This week, we have an interesting update on this story. The College Board has announced that it will be changing its AP African-American Studies course. And if you squint, the board appears to own up to the political pressure. In embarking on this effort, access was our driving principle, both access to a discipline that has not been widely available to high school students and access for as many of those students as possible. Regrettably, along the way, those dual access goals have come into conflict, which is maybe a mea culpa. And then there is this kicker. After all of the contortions to appeal to Governor DeSantis, he and Florida Republicans are making plans to spend $2.8 million to create their own rival version of the College Board's AP courses. So much for going along to get along. That is our show for tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.